Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Today is the last Sunday before the beginning of Lent. That means, of course, that this Tuesday is Fat Tuesday or Mardi Gras. It certainly won't be a normal Mardi Gras this year. I think we can save all those beads and king cakes for another time. Well, maybe we can enjoy just a little bit of king cake. It also means that this Wednesday is Ash Wednesday, and I hope that you will join us for that service. But in the, but in the liturgical calendar, the last Sunday before Lent means something else. This Sunday, the Sunday before the start of Lent, traditionally is known as Transfiguration Sunday in the Revised Common Lectionary. It's the Sunday when, every year, we read the text that we have for this morning. Jesus takes his three closest disciples up a mountain and then is transfigured before them. Now, if you've been attending FCC for a while, you'll notice something. You'll notice that I have never preached on the transfiguration. Why is that? Why have I assiduously avoided the transfiguration even though it appears in the lectionary every year? Without a doubt, there is much to be said for this passage. It's one of those passage that, passages that contains layers upon layers of meaning. Most obviously, the text is a statement on Christology, or the nature of Jesus. In the passage immediately before this one, we have the interaction between Jesus and the disciples at Caesarea Philippi. That is where Jesus asks the disciples who people say that he is. Some say that he is John the Baptist, presumably some reincarnation of John. Others say that he is Elijah, or one of the prophets. That's when Peter makes the famous declaration that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. Not coincidentally, the transfiguration follows on that, de on that declaration. Here is Jesus transfigured before them. The very power of God is with Jesus. This text is a confirmation that Jesus is the Messiah. In addition to the Christological implications of this passage, the text is full of allusions to the Old Testament. Jesus and the three disciples go up on a high mountain where they have an experience of God. This is clearly a reference to Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb, where God revealed God's self to Moses and later Elijah. Not coincidentally, on the mountain in our text, we meet both Moses and Elijah. Moses is the giver of the law, and Jesus is the new lawgiver for Israel and the whole world. Elijah is the prototypical prophet. He was taken up into heaven, and according to the prophet Malachi, Elijah was supposed to return before the dawn of the new age. Well, here is Elijah returning. Clouds often appeared when the very presence of God appears, and here we have the disciples being enveloped by a cloud when they hear the voice of God. The phrase we find, this is my son, the beloved, is the same phrase we find when Jesus was baptized. The transfiguration of Jesus' clothes into a dazzling white is a prefiguration of the resurrected Christ. It hints at what is to come and follows Jesus' statement that he must suffer and die. I could go on and on. So with all these layers of meaning, 
why have I avoided the transfiguration? I mean, there's so much I could preach on. I have to be honest. What's bothered me about this text is how fantastical it is. Like it belongs in a science fiction novel. The teachings of Jesus, I love the teachings of Jesus. It's great to preach on the parables or some other insight that Jesus offers us. I'm comfortable with those texts. Even many of the miracles of Jesus, I'm comfortable with. I like Jesus the healer. I celebrate when Jesus feeds the 5,000 or turns water into wine. But here, the transfiguration, it seems more like something out of a Disney movie, something that should be relegated to a painting. Do we say the text is wholly made up? Do we interpret it in a figurative context? It presents a problem. What do we do? Fundamentally, the problem for me arises from God. Does God function in this way? Is this what we should expect from God? We want an experience of God, so we need to go up a mountain and see Jesus transfigured and Moses and Elijah magically appearing along with clouds and voices from nowhere? Do you see what I mean? Can you see why I might have avoided this text? The interesting thing is that this text would not have been a problem for someone in a pre-modern world. In a pre-modern, pre-scientific world, there were not limitations placed on God. God was God. There was no reason why God could not transfigure Jesus or have Elijah and Moses miraculously appear out of nowhere. In the pre-modern world, cause and effect were regulated by God's will, or at least the will of a spirit-filled cosmos. It was a world infused with the pregnant possibility of God. But we find ourselves in a distinctly different place today, don't we? Our views on God today are an inheritance of the 17th century. Rene Descartes famously created a philosophical dualism between mind and body. Humans had bodies, like every other living thing, that responded to the forces in the world. Separate from our bodies were our minds, our consciousness. Our consciousness is immaterial, unlike our bodies. With our minds and soul walled off from the world, the world was open to scientific experimentation. As the 17th century progressed, the scientific revolution began to explain how things happened in the world. What was revolutionary about this new scientific viewpoint is that it didn't include God. The laws of physics that Isaac Newton theorized about did not depend on a benevolent creator. The material world operated much on its own. As science made more and more advances, it made people wonder what role, if any, God had. Did God exist? Could you prove God's existence like you might prove a scientific equation? By the 18th century, the debates over the existence of God raged furiously back and forth, and in many ways color even our debates about God today. Those who argued for God said you needed to have an unmoved mover. If the world operated as a result of physical interactions, what started those reactions? What came before? For every new scientific discovery in the universe, this unmoved mover argument kept coming back. Today, the question still remains. 
Sure, you can theorize about a big bang that started the universe, but what came before then? Where did matter originate from? It had to come from somewhere, yes. The second classic argument for God is the argument from design. The world and the universe are so perfect that they have to originate in a benevolent creator. Yes, science can explain how things came to be as they are, but what is the chance that they did? Think about all the ways in which life could have chosen a different direction than it did. Consider all those supposedly random mutations of DNA that led to me preaching before you today. What is the likelihood that all of that happened? Everything in the universe seems so put together, so perfect, so improbable, that there must be some creative force that lies behind creation. Right? These two classic arguments have been brought up again and again. Philosophers of religion have debated these and other arguments for God for the past 300 years. When you survey all the philosophical arguments back and forth about God, you come to one unavoidable conclusion. God can neither be proven nor disproven. That might seem like a colossal letdown, but it's true. For every argument given on behalf of God, there is another equally valid argument against God. But all those arguments, all those debates and advances of science have done something significant. They've created a world in which God is not necessary. If there is any problem with God, if there's anything that we have to wrestle with deeply as people of faith, it is that the world can be adequately explained and lived in without recourse to a belief in God. The issue is not that we can't believe in God anymore. We can. The more significant point is that we can't believe in a God of the transfiguration. The God who bends the laws of nature at will, governs the sway of the universe, and demands to be obeyed or else. This has momentous consequences for us. Back when I was a chaplain at Harvard, I spent a fair amount of time working with evangelical students. I always enjoyed the friendly back and forth we would have about theology and God. One particular precocious student named Nico, I probably had more debates with than anyone else. A few years after he graduated, we grabbed a cup of coffee at a Starbucks to catch up. At the time, Nico was a graduate student in philosophy. And at one point in the conversation, he mentioned that he was no longer a Christian. To be honest, I was pretty surprised by this. Here was one of the most ardent Christians that I had known when he was an undergraduate. His study of philosophy, among other things, had led him to reject the classic conservative notion of God, the same God we see in the passage on the Transfiguration. I asked him at the time why he didn't embrace one of the many uh, liberal or progressive views on God. He knew enough philosophy to know that these contemporary views on God make, make sense. He looked me dead in the eye and replied, John, I don't see any point in believing that type of God. For me, God was either the all-powerful miracle maker or he was irrelevant. Why believe in a God who can't do anything? 
And that, I think, more than anything else, is a situation we find ourselves in now. Arguments for and against God haven't disproven God, but they have reduced God's power so much, but have they reduced God's power so much so as to make God irrelevant? If not, what makes a belief in God relevant? More to the point, how are we supposed to think about God in the 21st century in ways that matter to our lives? Where is God for us, for you? Last fall, in my sermon on God in the 21st century, I addressed some of these questions. But as I've thought, about the, thought about more about the issue, I've realized that there is a need to go into greater depth on the problem. To that end, I have planned out a series of sermons during Lent that address just this issue. What are the various ways we can think about God today in a context that makes sense for our lives? What makes God relevant and believable? The good news is that theologians have written wonderful and compelling theologies on God over the past 100 years. The 1920s launched a sea change in how we think about God. Neo-Orthodox theologians, process theologians, existentialist theologians, and post-liberal theologians, just to name a few, have all wrestled deeply with this crucial problem. Rather than choose one approach that I find compelling, I've decided to lay out a series of different views on God to empower you to make your own choice about who God is and why God is relevant for you. This is by no means the final word on God, but I do hope that it'll help you on your own faith journey. All of which brings me back to the transfiguration and an important starting point as we begin this theological journey. As I mentioned before, on the face of it, I struggle with the transfiguration. The walk up the unknown mountain, the transformation of Jesus and his clothes, the appearance of Moses and Elijah, the dark cloud, the voice of God. I struggle with trying to place this episode in, into any conception of my life experience that makes sense to me. I have not seen Jesus, or anyone for that matter, transformed before me in the manner described in our text. I have not seen apparitions of two people long dead suddenly appear. Ditto for the clouds and the voice of God. But does that mean that it didn't happen? Or that something like it didn't happen? Assuming that this story recounts something that the three disciples actually experienced, the three of them experienced something. They experienced something and then tried to make sense of it. How they described it might make little sense to me, but it made sense to them. This is a key philosophical starting point for our thinking about God. There is no such thing as objective human experience. There is no such thing as objective human experience for the simple reason that all experiences of the world are filtered through our own brains and our senses. There is no way for us to know that what we see or experience is what everyone else sees and experiences. Take a simple example. I could look at a copy of our hymnal and say that the cover is red. You would look at the same book and concur that the cover is red. But we have no way of knowing that what you see in your mind's eye is the same thing as what I see. We both assign that color red, but you could be seeing something slightly different. 
because of the way your way of your eyes, your optic nerves and brains interpret that wavelength of light. Or take the far more radical approach of the movie The Matrix. The premise of the movie The Matrix is that the world we experience every day is not real. According to the movie, our brains are hooked up to a virtual reality machine where we interact with one another in, a, in ways that convince our brains that we're experiencing what, <laughs> that what we are experiencing is real, but it's not. Famously, in one scene, Neo, played by Keanu Reeves, is asked by Morpheus, played by Lawrence Fishburne, whether he wants to have his eyes open to the reality of things. Mor- Morpheus offers Neo a choice. He can take a red pill or a blue pill. The red pill will open Neo's eyes to the, reality of the matri- uh, to the reality of the matrix, but is sure to offer uncertainty and difficulty. The blue pill will allow Neo to forget that he ever met Morpheus and return to blissful ignorance within the virtual reality machine that his brain is hooked up to. In the end, Neo chooses the red pill. Now, we'll return to the philosophy of the matrix in a later sermon, but this one, but this, but this one essential starting point remains. Our perception of reality is always unnecessarily subjective. The disciples experienced something in our reading for this morning. Perhaps if you were there, you would have experienced something very different. But they experienced something. And it changed their perspective on Jesus and God. This is where we must begin this sermon series. In the weeks ahead, I want you to think deeply about your experiences of God. What were the mountaintop experiences that shape how you see God? What are the everyday experiences of God, and why do they matter? How have your conversations about God with others changed how you interpret your experiences? Can you think of different examples? In the weeks to come, I will offer you different ways of interpreting those experiences of God. You'll have to see which frameworks makes them make the most sense to you. I hope and I pray that when we approach Easter, you'll have a clear sense of God in your life, and importantly, why God is still relevant to you and others. All the world, including our experiences of God, we filter through our brains, our interactions with others, our readings, our senses. In the midst of all that, we must try to discern what is true in the world. There is no one objective truth about the world. The best we can do is use our brains to interpret our experiences. And that's exactly what we'll be doing during this Lent. In the meantime, while we wait for Lent to begin, I invite you to meditate on the transfiguration. Use your imagination. Place yourself beside Peter and James and John. Soak in the full sensory experience. What did the rocks feel like under their feet? How did the atmosphere change as they walked higher and higher up the mountain? The brightness of Jesus' clothes, the loud sound of the voice in the cloud. Feel their fear, but also their excitement. Maybe, just maybe, you'll be able to move beyond your hang-ups with this passage, and it will invoke something special of God for you. As you go through this process, you might come to realize that there are deep truths about God here. 
hold on to those. You'll be needing them in the weeks ahead.